Amen. Well, would you join me in your Bibles this morning in Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18. Just a reminder, as returning there, we do have our members class that will be continuing this evening at 4.30. Just encourage you, those who are interested in joining Cloverleaf, come on out 4.30 this evening. Also want to encourage you to sign up for our family conference. Um, that is just around the corner. I know September 23rd feels a ways off, but that is literally next weekend. Sign up. Here's why I'm asking you to sign up. We're actually going to be providing a meal. We kind of need to know how many people are coming. Uh, so far, we've had seven sign up, and I'm guessing we're going to have more than seven coming. And uh, so just go ahead and jump onto our website. It's right there on the front page. It's free, and uh, signing up is not signing your life away. It's just letting us know you're planning on being there so we can plan accordingly. Invite folks. It's going to be a great time, September 23rd, 24th. Luke chapter 18 is where we are in our Bibles. Follow along as we read. Uh, these are the very words of God. Follow along as we read, beginning in verse 18. Luke 18, verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now, when Jesus had heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou, lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye then for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Lo, behold, we've left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There's no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in the present time and in the world to come life everlasting. Today we're remembering the 21st anniversary of, of 9-11. And it's sort of striking to me how just, you know, 21 years, how quickly we forget what happened. Um, I looked at the, the news today, New York Times, there wasn't even a mention of it. There's all these other things going on in our world that sort of steal the headlines. But I think most of you who, who were alive then can remember exactly where you were when you found out about what happened on that, on that horrible day, on September 11th. One thing that always will stand out to me is September 12th. Uh, as I sort of look back on our nation's history, just in my lifetime, I'm, I'm not that old, September 12th, 2001, to me stands out as an incredibly special time in our country because I think the only time in my lifetime there was a genuine sense of unity in our nation. Remember all the flags, all the patriotic displays, uh, just the, you know, the World Series, huge flags, people waving them, the president coming out, throwing out the first pitch. Loved it, right? That patriotism, that unity, the, the singing of, you know, God bless America. But one thing I also remember became very prominent at that time was the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag and one nation under God. This, this declaration that we are pledging allegiance, not really to a, to a piece of fabric, but to the ideals that that represents, to this, this country that is, that is our country, that we recognize as, as our own, we recognize as having claim 
uh, over our loyalty and our allegiance. Our text today is, in a sense, a call for the rich young ruler to make a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. You see, Jesus will not tolerate divided allegiances. He won't tolerate allegiance to money and to him. He actually says it earlier in the gospel. No one can serve two masters, right? You can't serve God and money, God and wealth. It's going to be one or the other. Either God or stuff is going to have ultimate allegiance in our lives. And listen, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, have eternal life, Jesus must have ultimate allegiance in our lives. And it's more than just words that are said, a pledge that you make, but it is a way of life. This passage here that we just read that we're going to dig into is a call for you and me to pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and him alone and him supremely. Now, just a reminder where we are in Luke's gospel. This section of the the journey to Jerusalem, we're calling kingdom citizenship. Here's why. It's telling us the criteria, the requirements that we have to meet to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. There's a national language of heaven, and it's that language of confession. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That, that's the language we've got to be fluent in if we are going to be citizens of heaven. We can't speak the language of self-righteous pride, but rather the, the language of dependence on Jesus, confession of our sin. Kingdom citizenship also is going to require that we have a declaration of dependence. We like to be independent, to say, hey, I've got this, I can handle this. But he says, hey, listen, you've got to come and receive the kingdom like a little child. Come empty-handed, come dependent, come in confidence in what Jesus has done, not in what we do for ourselves. There's going to be a declaration of dependence, and that is a way of life for a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This text here continues on with that theme, and by the way, it's going to continue all the way on into chapter 19 with the story of Zacchaeus. It's stitched together by this recurring focus on eternal life in the, in the account of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. He says, this one went to his house justified, declared righteous. He says in the next account that unless you receive the kingdom, you won't enter into it. Here this guy straight up asks the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life when I die? And Jesus then will transition to talking about receiving the kingdom, having, the, having uh, eternal life. These are all the same concepts. This text calls for you and for me to consider our eternal condition, whether or not we have made a pledge of allegiance to Jesus. Now, maybe you say, yeah, I've done that. Okay, are are you living living like it? So let's dive into this. As we meet the rich young ruler, as we learn about salvation, the the first scene here, we, 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 we see salvation's urgent question. So verse 18, it says, a certain ruler Asked him. Now, Mark's gospel fills in some of the details. This guy came running up to Jesus, and he kneeled down before him. This guy is eager. This guy is urgent. This guy is desperate. This is not one of those questions like the, you know, the Pharisees are like, oh, Jesus, we're going to really try and trip you up. This is a sincere seeker. This is an individual you look at and say, man, this guy really wants to know the answer. He is really, he's saying, what do I need to do? Anything you tell me to do, I'm ready to do it. If Jesus had told him, go be dipped in the Jordan seven times, he would have gone and done it. Go offer a sacrifice, would have done it. The way the question is worded, what good thing shall I do? What good thing having done? Some sort of climactic act. What sort of one thing do I need to do to be assured of my soul? Now, this is a person, if you were out you know, trying to soul win or evangelize, you'd be like, this guy's a choice prospect. You know, you go out and try and witness to people most people don't really care. They don't want to talk about you know, their condition, their relationship with Jesus. 
But here you find, you go, you know, knock on a door, you start a conversation, this guy's like, all right, so what do I need to do to have eternal life? You're like, man, there is, there is like the slam dunk question for a Christian who knows the gospel. It's like the Philippian jailer, what do I need to do to be saved? Like, man, this guy, he's ready, he's eager, he's a choice prospect, and what's more, he's a, he's a ruler. Uh, all three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he's rich. Matthew tells us that he was young. Luke tells us that he's a ruler. That's where we get that composite label, the rich, young ruler. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Man, he's got a whole lifetime ahead of him to serve Jesus. He's got lots of money, so let's get him saved, get him tithing. You know, this will be great. We'll be able to do some improvements on our local church. This guy will be, and man, he's, 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 he's powerful. So think about, man, we get a celebrity who comes to Jesus. Now we have validation. Isn't that often a, an impulse, you know, like, yeah, Kanye West, now we really like, let's wait, just see what happens here. This desire to sort of find validation and getting important people to, to claim Jesus. Like, I don't know, maybe we, we, we shouldn't be doing that, just let Jesus be the celebrity. Okay, so he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. Listen, if Jesus had taken sort of evangelism 101 classes, he would be saying, all right, let me get you to pray this prayer. You're ready to go. Like, let's, let's sort of seal the deal now, get you to join the ranks of my disciple. We'll deal with all that stuff about money and budgeting and discipleship and repentance. We'll deal with that later on. But notice Jesus doesn't do that. Now, here's what's striking to me. This guy has it all. He's obviously a very pious religious person. This is not a guy like Zacchaeus or Matthew who are like, cheating tax collectors who rob people. He's not part of the mafia. He's not a criminal. He's actually someone we would look at and say he's a good, moral person. He's not lacking something, anything in his life. He's rich. He's got it all together. He's not someone who's just gone through some crisis who's like, I'm impoverished, so I need Jesus as a crutch. So why does he ask this question? Why? Because in spite of his power, in spite of his prestige, in spite of his youth, there's something missing in his soul. In spite of all of his religious efforts, there's still this gnawing lack of assurance, this question of, if I were to die, I don't really know if I would have eternal life. If history were to wind up, as Daniel 12.2 talks about, I don't know if I would be in the resurrection of the just. There's a question, have I done enough? Listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, there's always going to be that gnawing sense of, can I really know? Do I have assurance that... Things are right between me and my creator, right between me and God. Well, what an, what an urgent question that he's asking. Now, now Jesus begins to, to break this down in verse 19. Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good but God, right? Like, what's going on here with this? Now, I don't think we should ascribe bad motives to this guy. He's not trying to butter Jesus up to get Jesus to do so. He, he genuinely wants to know. He genuinely views Jesus as good. But he's thinking, hey, Jesus, you're good. I'm good as well. We're sort of good in the same way. So Jesus is coming along saying, buddy, your definition of good needs to change. Listen, if our definition of good is sort of measuring ourselves against other people, uh, of course we can all sort of claim ourselves, yeah, I'm a good person. I've not robbed a bank. I've not, you know, cheated on my, uh, 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 in my marriage. I've been faithful to my spouse. I'm a good parent. I work hard. In that level of good, in a civic sense, right, in a common grace kind of sense, there's plenty of quote-unquote good people. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be religious to be a good, decent person. In fact, I have met atheists who are really moral, decent, ethical people, often more decent, ethical, friendly than some Christians I know. We can have this kind of 
human level goodness. Let me compare it this way. You're playing the game of Monopoly, right? You get your $200, you pass go, you got Boardwalk, Park Place, you're just sort of cleaning up. Hey, that money in the Monopoly game is really useful for the game of Monopoly. It has real value in the game of Monopoly. No good if you go to Walmart, right? If you try and use that money to check out at Walmart, they'll be like, mm, this isn't gonna work, right? Let's call security over here. In the same way, human goodness, human righteousness, it has currency in our interpersonal relationships. I would rather have this guy as a neighbor Okay, then Zacchaeus, who's, who could rob me blind. Um, but when it comes to sort of the judgment day, bringing the money to, into Walmart, so to speak, it's no good. Human goodness will not avail on judgment day. It won't get you through the checkout line, so to speak. So what is Jesus doing in verse 19? Some people have been like, ah, look, Jesus didn't pretend to be good. There's no one good. I'm not good. I'm a sinner just like you. Some commentators have taken it that way. That's not going to work because the Bible affirms over and over again that he was sinless, who did no sin. Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. He is unable to sin because he is God. What's his point is saying, hey, rich young ruler, your definition of goodness isn't everyone else. It's God. That's the one you compare yourself to. If you want eternal life, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. That's the standard. He's telling him, you've set the bar too low. Jesus is saying, your standard of goodness is not good enough. Only one is truly good, and it's God himself. He's the standard. In a lot of ways, this guy is like the, uh, the, the Pharisee in the temple. I thank thee that I'm not as other men aren't compare himself to everyone else. Listen, if we do that, we can sort of make our consciences feel pretty good about ourselves. Sort of take an aspirin for this, this throbbing headache of our conscience. Well, okay, that's, that's nice, but what if you have a terminal brain tumor that is causing the headache? Right? Well, just taking an aspirin is not actually getting to the problem. What if the, the, the gnawing pain in our conscience is not just, okay, can I placate myself to make myself consider, feel like I'm better than other people? What if there is a terminal spiritual disease called sin that only God can answer? Jesus goes on, verse 20. You know the commandments. Now, just to get... Think about the ways that we are sort of conditioned to do evangelism. What do I need to do to eternal life? Okay, four spiritual laws, pray this prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, now you're good to go. Jesus does something that, like, doesn't make sense. He takes him to the Ten Commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments, you have eternal life. And the guy has the audacity in verse 21, all these I've kept from my youth up should be good to go. But I'm missing something, seems to be the insinuation. What is Jesus doing here? Well, he is, he's trying to help this man see that he is lost. He's asking for eternal life, but he doesn't want to recognize that he is a sinner. So what does Jesus do? The standard is God's goodness. The standard is God's law, the Ten Commandments. And what the rich young ruler and the Pharisees and many today forget is the Ten Commandments were never merely about behavior. What's the tenth of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not, what, covet. Coveting is not really like a, a thing that I go and do to my neighbor. It is an attitude of the heart. The tenth commandment reminds us that the nine all before it apply to the desires of the heart. So it's not good enough just to say, I haven't killed my neighbor. Well, if you've ever wanted to kill your neighbor, you have violated that. Now, what are ways we want to kill our neighbor? That's simply what anger is. You feel anger towards your neighbor, by the way. Your neighbor is not just the person who lives next to you on your street or across the way. Any fellow human being. 
Simply feeling that anger or that hatred or that disdain or even assassinating their character by saying, well, I think this about them. That is a murder of the heart. Now, it's not the same as murder of the hand. I would rather my neighbor hate me than kill me. But it is sin nonetheless in the sight of a holy God. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Uh, you're, well, I've not cheated. Technically, I've not cheated in my marriage. I technically didn't cross this line or that line. Jesus says, you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart. You've committed adultery already in your heart. Again, adultery in the heart, not the same as adultery that you actually commit with your body, but it is a violation of God's law. Jesus sets the standard infinitely high. By the way, that, that reference is from Matthew 5, 27 to 28. He says, don't kill, don't steal. <sighs> Not robbed any banks. Okay, but it doesn't say don't steal from banks or don't steal large sums of money. It just says don't steal, period. Like you, we, we steal from those who employ us by squandering time. We steal from those who trust us by betraying trusts. We steal people's reputation, people's honor. We steal from the government by withholding taxes that we rightly owe. We steal from God by withholding what is his, withholding the worship that is due his name. A myriad of ways that we steal, that we, we justify in our minds, like, man, pirating that movie from that, that that's, that's okay. Those people have tons of money when they're bad people, so I can rob. It doesn't say thou shalt not steal. Unless they're bad people, you can steal. No, no, thou shalt not steal. We go on and on. I mean, like the, the, the standard that, that is conveyed succinctly in the Ten Commandments as we dig into it, gets higher and higher and higher. Don't bear false witness. Okay, I've not perjured myself in court. I've never been in court, raised my hand to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and then lied. But what is behind that is that we are demanded, we are called upon to reverence and uphold and speak and love the truth and to guard my neighbor's reputation. So you hear someone else slandering your neighbor. You're like, well, well I'm not going to lie. Well, no, we're called to defend that. So much that is required here that there is not one of us that has kept any of the Ten Commandments in our lifetime. Add to that the first table. Jesus doesn't even mention, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right? No other gods before me. No graven images. Remember the Sabbath day. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And he adds in here, honor your father and mother. Listen, we are 0-4-10. So what is Jesus doing? He's not saying, well, there's two ways to go to heaven. There's believing in me, and then there's keeping the law. What is he doing is he's laying the, the law before the rich young ruler to help him see the reason I need eternal life, the reason why I feel this gnawing pain in my conscience is that I, that I am a sinner who needs forgiveness and grace, and there's no hope in me. Now, the response in verse 21 is, is sort of shockingly glib. All this I've kept from my youth up, since my bar of mitzvah at age 18, I have kept God's law perfectly in such a way as I merit and deserve eternal life. What's he looking for is Jesus saying, you know what, you are a good person. You're on your way to heaven. I now declare you saved. That's what he's after. I've kept the law. But listen, a moment's reflection as to the nature and the aim of God's law should disabuse us of that notion to think that we are good people. No, we're not. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So salvation's urgent question is urgent precisely because eternal life is eternal and precisely because our sinful souls are sinful. When we put those two things together, it's not a good mix. We're going to stand before an infinitely holy God on Judgment Day. And by the way, if, one, if we should sort of take one lesson from 9-11... 
it is how fragile our lives are. All those people who went in the towers that they did not expect to be standing before their creator before the morning was over. We will stand before our creator. The books will be opened. Our lives will be judged. And the verdict for every single human on the planet, based on our works, based on the law of God, is guilty. And the punishment is eternal condemnation. Serious stuff. Urgent question. You say, okay, Jesus, that's good enough. You can sort of stop there. You have, you have you've exposed this man's sin. Let's just go ahead now and get to the good stuff of, like, believe and I forgive your sin. Whew. He doesn't stop there, though, because the man's response in verse 21 shows that he does not yet see himself as a sinner. So we come now to verse 22, and we come now to this next scene, this next uh, stage in Jesus' argument, which we're going to say is salvation's costly requirement. So he's now going to lay out a very specific requirement on the rich young ruler. Now, when Jesus heard these things, he hears this man's audacious, I've kept the law my whole life, response. He says, yet lackest thou one thing. You're missing out on one thing. One glaring, massive thing in your life. Here it is. Sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven. You'll have eternal life. You'll have forgiveness. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Mark's gospel adds that he left he walked away from Jesus when this requirement was laid on him. Now, what is Jesus doing? Is he teaching salvation by generosity? Is he saying that in order to go to heaven, we need to take a vow of poverty, give all of our money to the poor, you know, walk around without shoes, wear some kind of a brown robe, get a weird haircut, go live in a monastery? Some have taken it that way over church history, say this is a universally binding command for everyone. I say no because there are plenty of other people in the New Testament that Jesus saved and that received eternal life who didn't sell everything they had and, and give their money away to the poor. What is Jesus doing? He is continuing to lay out the awesome demands of God's law on this young man to help him buckle under the weight to realize I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. That's what he's doing here. So he says, sell everything you have, distribute to the poor. Did you notice there was one command in the second half of the Ten Commandments Jesus did not mention? And it was, don't covet. See, this, this man had a love affair with money. His heart was, had pledged allegiance to money and to wealth and to fame. And this is what he loved more than he loved God. This is what he loved more than he loved eternal life. And the grip of his heart was firm, firmly attached to wealth. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you are going to be saved and have eternal life, you must repent. And specifically, what repentance will look like in your life is relinquishing your claim to your stuff. Jesus is not saying this because he's some kind of a Marxist who's like money and stuff is bad. He's not saying this because everyone who need, who's going to be saved is going to get saved by giving up their stuff. He is saying you must repent. And specifically, the sin from which you must repent is this grip of greed in your heart. So what's this costly requirement doing? Well, just if you want to take a few notes on, on this point, Jesus' demand, and this is an incredible demand, it is a staggering, shocking demand. This demand reveals the ruler's sin. That's the first goal Jesus has in laying this out. It's to reveal his sin. Romans 7, verse 7, Paul says, I had not known sin except by the law. Right? God puts a law out there, and it does two things in my heart. 
Uh, well, let me illustrate it this way. You see a speed limit sign that says 55 miles an hour. What do we all instinctively think in our minds? How fast can I go without getting a ticket? Right, so if the speed limit were 45, we would content ourselves with going like 53. If the speed limit is 55, we want to go you know, 63, 70. We kind of push that, the envelope a little bit. Uh, the fact, when there's a law there, there's something in our heart that automatically wants to cross the line. Why? Because we, we want to be in charge of our own life. We don't want anyone telling us what to do, much less God telling me what I can or cannot do. My dad tells a story from when he you know, traveled. He went to Yellowstone, and there's all of these boiling pools, and there is one pool that has a sign that says, do not throw coins into the pool. You know which pool, which is the only pool that has coins in it? Or you're going along and you see a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. Okay, these are really wet. Let me touch to see what happens. The, 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 when there is a law, when there is a commandment, it, it reveals the ways that I fall short and break that commandment, but it also stirs up in my heart this rebellion. So by laying out this commandment before the, the rich young ruler, Jesus is revealing them, number one, you've not kept the, the law of thou shalt not covet, but it also shows that you have in your nature this gravitational pull, this unbreakable magnetism towards your sin. He's calling him to thoroughgoing repentance. You have to have a change of heart about your sin, this love you have for your stuff. You need to turn to me fully. Listen, coming to Christ means leaving sin behind. It means casting off idols. Uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians writing to these former pagans, says, you guys turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. That's what conversion looks like. Saving faith always goes hand in hand with repentance. Now, we're not justified by repentance. It's not that you're saved by faith and repentance is sort of added on to it. No, it is within the nature of genuine saving faith to repent, to say, I'm trusting in Jesus alone, and by trusting in Jesus alone, I'm, I'm not trusting into or holding on to or treasuring anything else. It's just, it's just baked into the cake of what the nature of faith is. The second aim Jesus has in this demand is not just to reveal his sin, but to reveal his ultimate allegiance. Maybe up to this point, the rich young ruler hadn't really thought about the fact that he loved money more than he loved Jesus. But the moment he was called to let go of it, he was like, no, I can't. I need to hold on to that, right? It's like, like a little kid when you're like, they don't like a particular toy until someone else wants that toy. There's these sins that lie dormant in our hearts, and until Jesus comes and demands we give them up, we don't realize how strongly our allegiance is to those particular sins. The end of the day, he loved his money more than he loved God, and therefore he was an idolater. Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul says, talking about the, the sins of the old life, he mentions covetousness, which is what? Idolatry. Loving stuff, wanting stuff, is putting something in the place of God. The first commandment and the tenth commandment and the ten commandments really are talking about the same thing. No other gods, and by the way, that includes money. So he reveals his ultimate allegiance that money, greed, held highest place in his heart. And at the bottom of this, the third goal Jesus has is to reveal his confidence. In the parallel account in, in Mark... Jesus comes along, we're, we're, we're in our passage, says, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Mark's account says, how hardly shall they who trust in riches? It wasn't just that this man had riches, it was that he put his confidence and his trust in the riches. He was saying, these riches are a sign of God's blessing, these riches are what give me security and ultimate meaning in life. He was trusting in someone or something other than the promises of God to forgive sin through his promised Messiah. That's ultimately why... 
This man was not saved as he wanted to trust himself, his own righteousness, his own riches, rather than casting himself on the mercy of Jesus and Jesus alone. So to be clear, Jesus is not demanding universal poverty for all of his people. Though for some, this may be something that you need to do to say, you know what, money has such a stronghold in my life, I'm going to give it away. Generosity is a great way to break the tyranny of greed in your heart. When you start giving away the money that you love, maybe not all of it, maybe a portion of it, maybe the Spirit of God leads you in a specific way. Listen, if you find yourself loving money, start breaking that tyranny by saying, I'm going to be generous with that money. Whatever the sin is, repentance is going to be specific. It's going to look different in every one of our lives. But being a Christian means walking the path of repentance. So he says at the end of verse 22, and come follow me. You've been following yourself. Now you're going to begin a life of following me. That's a lifelong pursuit. This is not a overnight, I've made my decision and now everything's perfect in my life. No, we, we, we take one step at a time as we follow Jesus through life. Now that leaves us in a pretty bad place. Jesus is pretty much stripped from this man all claims of self-righteousness. No one's good but God. Here's the law. You've not kept it. By the way, the demands for salvation, the requirement is this conformity to the law that you've not done. What should this man have done at this point? Be merciful to me, the sinner. What does he do? He's very sorrowful, revealing a heart that loves his money, that loves his sin of greed. That brings us to a third scene. Verse 24. Now when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful. He said, how hard, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus now brings us to the good news, which sounds like bad news, but it's actually really good news. It is salvation's divine achievement. He has set the bar so high that literally nobody can meet that standard. In fact, we don't just, it's not that we just, oh, just a little short. We're in the opposite direction, right? It's like you're setting up a target over this way, and it's not like, oh, you just shot six inches wide. We're shooting the arrow back that way. Salvation's only going to be achieved by a work of God. That's the point here. So he says, it's hard. How hard will it be for those who are having riches, who are holding on to riches, who are clinging to riches, to enter into the kingdom of God? Here's his point. Salvation is humanly impossible. There's no way, absolutely no way, For a sinner to achieve salvation, it is impossible. That's the point he wants us to take. You say, well, rich people, yeah, rich people are bad. We kind of have this this idea in today's world, like where we sort of distrust rich people, and you got like Elizabeth Warren running around talking about how bad billionaires are and all this. It was the opposite in the ancient world. They looked at rich people and says, well, they're obviously favored by God, right? They wouldn't be rich. God wouldn't give them riches unless they were good people. Here's a guy who's a pious Jew who is rich. Listen, if he's not getting into heaven, none of us are. That explains the disciples' response in verse 26. Who then can be saved if this guy who is pious, who is prosperous, who is powerful who has it all together, who's a good guy, who's got a great background, a good family, if he's not going to heaven, who then is? That's the sense of the argument. If this person who would be the prime candidate to be a citizen of heaven is not making it, then none of us are. Now, verse 25, just a quick note on that. It's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to hear that and say, that's impossible. 
He's talking about a literal camel going through a literal needle's eye. Think about how little a needle is that you sew with in a little hole that you can't even get the thread through. And they give you those little things to try and pull the, the threads through. And it's, you know, you've got to have amazing eyesight. You've got to just get that little thread through. Now, imagine a big camel, hump and all, getting squeezed through that. Okay, so you picture that. That's an absurd picture, right? You're like, that, that is impossible. Poor camel, right? He's coming out, like, flattened. That's the point. Now, some people try to, to lessen this to say, well, it's not really the word uh, camelos, uh, it's the word camelos, which is actually rope. It's easier for a rope to, like, they try to change it or say, well, there's this gate called the needle's eye. Gate doesn't exist, no evidence for it. The, the point of this is to say it's impossible, right? He's using hyperbole. He's using this absurd image to be like, camels don't go through the eyes of the needle, eyes of a needle, and rich people can't enter heaven. Wow, this is really bad because even those of us who are not rich, you're like, oh, good, I'm off the hook, I'm not rich. You really want to be rich, right, in your heart? So whether those who are rich in their bank accounts and those who are want to be rich people in their hearts, let's just be honest, all of us, one of the reasons why we despise celebrity so much is we all sort of secretly want popularity of some kind, right? Like, none of us, humanly impossible. Rich people, poor people cannot enter the kingdom. That's the point. His point is not to say riches are inherently bad. Think about all the rich people in the Old Testament who were faithful saints. Okay, Abraham had a ton of stuff. He was one of the richest people in his day. His riches were not an impediment to him having genuine faith in God. So it's not the riches per se. It's the trust in riches that's the problem. We've got Boaz, who's an exemplary person. When everyone else, okay, you read the book of Ruth in the context of the end of the book of Judges. Everybody at the end of the book of Judges is doing horribly heinous, like just shockingly bad stuff. Just read the last couple chapters. You'll see what I'm talking about. And then, boom, here's Boaz. And he's doing everything right. Yet he's a really rich guy. So it's not that God is just like rich people, bad, bad, bad. No, those who, who trust in their riches. Joseph of Arimathea shows up in the Gospels. He's a rich man. He uses his riches for the glory of God. But why is it that riches pose a particular danger to our souls? Well, I think on one level, when life is easy, right, when you can sort of buy happiness, so to speak, we don't really think much about the condition of our souls. Right? When things are going well, when the health is good, bank account's good, we're making all the payments, we're not as aware of our dependence on God. It requires a work of the Holy Spirit to overcome that, to help us understand. We can become prideful, self-indulgent, selfish. Those are particular dangers that come along with riches. By the way, all of us are rich by the standards of what the rest of the world, how the rest of the world lives. We're in the 1%. We're living in the wealthiest, most prosperous nation in human history. We are the 1%. We're like the 0.1% if you compare our standard of living to the way most people have lived in every other part of the world at every point of history. We live like kings. But ultimately, it's not about the status of your bank account. You can be poor and greedy, and you can be rich and generous. We understand that. But here's the point. The grasping hand of greed cannot receive the gift of grace. Wealth quickly becomes the object of trust, the object of longing, rather than an instrument of service. 
So back up here, just zoom the camera out. Jesus is taking the law of God to condemn every one of us. Whether or not your sin is the sin of greed, that's the besetting sin in your heart, all of us have violated God's law in numerous ways, and we cannot be saved. It is impossible. Who then can be saved? That's where he wants us to get to recognize there's no hope for me in myself. There's no hope for me in any human effort. There's no hope for me in anything that I can do with the works of my own hands. All the best that I can bring to God... It's like a steaming pile of garbage, filthy rags. That's it. It's like water coming out of a poisonous, arsenic-laced spring. It doesn't matter how nice that water looks, how pretty the river is, it's poisonous. So the works are that come from hearts that are in rebellion against God. Well, that's an uplifting message. Right? There's the good news of the gospel. Here's how to evangelize like Jesus. By the way, I think we should evangelize like Jesus. Verse 27, this is the the crux. This is where the, the door swings on this hinge. The things which are impossible with men. He doesn't, he doesn't try to back off to say, well, it's not really impossible, it's just kind of hard. It's impossible with men. Those things are possible with God. And I think we read possible, well, just sort of potential. Like, no, the idea like his power can actually accomplish salvation. That's our only hope. Salvation is divinely accomplished. You see, God alone can break the enchantment of riches that grips our heart. God alone can shatter the shackles of sin. God alone can break the bonds of unbelief. God alone can open eyes that are spiritually blind. Because we don't want to see our sin. We're blind to our own sinfulness. I'm good. I'm doing pretty good. Like God's, yeah, he's a pretty, he's good. You know, he's nice. We are spiritually blind. We sang that hymn, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice. That's who we are without Jesus. We can't even hear the gospel. We can't even see our sinfulness or see his glory, see his goodness without him doing a work in our hearts. Now, Jesus is echoing other passages in Scripture. Primarily, he's echoing Genesis 18. Angel comes to It's actually Yahweh coming, the angel of the Lord, coming to Abraham, Sarah, saying, hey, you're going to have a son. Sarah, I'm almost 100. Not having any kids anytime soon. That's funny. That's a laugh. And the angel says, hey, things that are not possible with men, they are possible with God. The same thing is said in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, regards to the virgin birth of Jesus. We're like, yeah, virgin births doesn't happen. Scientifically, biologically impossible. God is a God who does the impossible. Put it in that context. Jesus is saying the salvation of a sinner, the conversion of a sinner, is a miracle like God giving a baby to an 100-year-old woman. It's a miracle like God bringing about the virgin birth. But that's not all. Ephesians chapter 1 compares our salvation to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and you've been made alive. Think about someone who has been dead for three days and three nights, walking out of a grave. That's a miracle. He says that's conversion. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The conversion of a sinner is a miracle on par with the creation of the universe. That's incredible. God creating life where there was none. This is not a a situation where, well, God sort of makes it possible and then you do the rest. Or God gives you some sort of, here's some sacraments that you sort of take advantage of to sort of achieve salvation over the course of your life. Oh, no, 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 no. It's not that God just says, 
yeah, here's the way that you do it. Now, you, avail, you go to church, you go to confession, you take some sacraments, you take communion, you do baptism, and then you will achieve. No, no, no. It's all grace. God's the one who opens the blind eyes. God's the one who brings about the new birth. God's the one who convicts us of our sin. God's the one who brings us to a place where we see Jesus as altogether lovely and we cast ourselves on him in mercy. God's the one who sent Jesus into this world to live the sinless life that we can't live. God's the one who sent Jesus into the world to go die on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. God the Father plans our salvation in eternity past. God the Son accomplishes our redemption through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, paying fully the penalty our sin deserves. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes those benefits and applies them to our hearts, the one who turns on the light bulb. If you're, if you're saved here today, you are saved because of the working of the triune God. You're not saved because of anything you did. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. He gets all the praise. It's almost like we need to get together every week and just sing to him and celebrate and be like, this is awesome. Oh, that's what we do every week is to celebrate because he has saved us. That's why we worship. We are redeemed to become worshipers, and this ought to excite our souls like nothing else can. Salvation is divinely accomplished. We now come to this final conversation here in verse 28, where Peter says, okay, Jesus, we've left all and followed you. We, we, we've done what the rich young ruler wasn't willing to. I don't think Peter here is being arrogant to be like, look at us, we have, we have claim. But it's, here's behind the question. Okay, Jesus, we have left everything. We do follow you. We do trust you. Is it worth it? Is there assurance for us that we have eternal life? And Jesus gives in verse 29 and 30 an emphatic, yes. If you have turned from your sin, you're following Jesus in faith. Jesus says you do have eternal life in the age to come. Notice the end of verse 30. He says there's no one who's left all of these things who will not in the world to come receive life everlasting. He says it's yours. It's guaranteed. You can have assurance. Some people go through life being like, I, don't, I, I can never know. And just eaten up with spiritual anxiety about, am I right with God? Can I know for sure that I belong to him, that my sins are forgiven? First John says that you can know, these things have I written unto you who believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. We don't go through life eaten up with anxiety, carrying this weight of being like, I don't know, have I done enough? Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through faith in his name, we can hear these words from Jesus to say, you have received eternal life. By the way, eternal life, by definition, is eternal, right? And if, it, if you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. It's his gift. So there's this eternal word, reward that comes with salvation. Peter and the other disciples literally had walked away from everything. Follow me, and they left the nets, left their dad, left the family business to literally follow Jesus. Walked away from home, walked away from fields, walked away from being home with their families all the time to, to go and listen and to learn from, listen to Jesus. It's interesting, though, they didn't give up vast wealth. They still gave up everything. It doesn't really matter the poor man's nets or the rich man's wealth. Giving up everything is giving up everything. They gave up their nets. They forsook their toll booths to follow Jesus in faith. They let go of their sin. So Peter is not being presumptuous. He's not looking to his works to save him. 
But he is saying, Jesus, can you give me that confirmation that this is worth it? So is it worth it? Verse 28, verse 29, it is worth it. Verily, I say unto you, truly, you can take this to the bank. You can depend on this. There's no one who has left house that would be family or parents or brethren or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Okay, we've got a double negative. There's no one who doesn't turn it around positively. Say everyone who has let go of everything to follow Jesus will be rewarded. Everyone. Now, is Jesus suggesting here that you need to abandon your family and end your marriage? Well, of course not. Okay, 1 Corinthians 7 says, you know, whatever state you are, wherein you're called, there remain. Marriage is this good gift from God. Family is this good gift of God. But think about early Christians, people Luke was writing to. You grow up in this Jewish family. Everyone is very steeped in going to synagogue, following Torah. And you come along and say, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. I am calling him Lord. And they're like, no, we don't believe in him. You would literally be disowned by your family, expelled from the synagogue. We even see that happening in the Gospel of John. You would have to lose your family at times to follow Jesus. Or even in the Roman world, you come say, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. I'm saying that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. You now get kicked out of any political involvement. You now get kicked out of broader society. We need to be willing to lose everything. So he's not talking about hard-hearted, I'm just going to dump my family and go like study the Bible all day. But he's saying there is a cost that comes with following Jesus. And here's the blessing. He says, everyone who does that right now receives all those things many times over. He's not preaching a health, wealth, prosperity gospel that, yeah, you give up your house, you all get a bigger house. No, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying you might lose your family, but you get an even bigger family. Right? You get to be part of the family of God. You might, your earthly parents might forsake you, but you get dozens of parents within the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters might think you're nuts. But you got brothers and sisters here who are to love you. The church is meant to be family. For those who don't have family, this is meant to be family. This is meant to be a place where people are welcomed and embraced. This is meant to be family for those who don't have family. This is meant to be family for those who do have families. It's meant to be a family of families. That's what he's promising. We are, beloved, the fulfillment of that promise. So it is worth it. Listen, the cost of following Jesus is high. The question is, will you trust Jesus? He says to the rich young ruler, give up everything, you get eternal life. And the rich young ruler essentially says, I don't buy that. At the bottom of his rejection of Jesus was a lack of faith. He didn't believe the promise of Jesus that eternal life, give up everything, got eternal life, wasn't willing to repent. But for those who have, it is worth it. Why? Because Jesus himself is infinitely better than everything this world offers. Jesus himself is infinitely better than anything that sin throws your way. Jesus himself is infinitely better than giving into that temptation, than indulging in that sin, than pursuing your own desires, chasing after wealth, chasing after fame. He is better. And the call of the gospel is this. Will you see Jesus as the one who is infinitely better? Will you put your trust in that one who is infinitely better? The rich young ruler said, no, I don't buy that. The disciples 
and we with them, we say yes a million times over, yes. It is worth it to follow Jesus. Now, do you have that kind of faith? That treasuring Jesus above all 